Welcome to The Church Door, a place where I can post my Bible studies and sermons for your listening pleasure. I'm the Reverend Matthew Fenn, pastor of St. Peter's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Stratford, Ontario. Thanks for tuning us in. Welcome, everybody, to our uh, Bible study. We are now in 2 Samuel, uh, continuing on with the life of David, now moving into um, the reign of David. The entirety of 2 Samuel covers the reign of David. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we ask you to uh, bless our study now as we enter into your word. Open, send your Holy Spirit, open uh, its contents to us that we may apply it to our lives and we may see in it uh, your uh, plan of salvation, which has been uh, realized through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. So if everybody can just uh, place themselves on uh, mute while I do a little bit of a summary and... uh, do first half here and then we'll open up for for discussion in a bit okay so today we we've covered uh first samuel chapters one and two uh last week we ended first samuel with the death of saul and his three sons including jonathan uh david's uh good friend uh, they died in a battle with the Philistines, major defeat for Israel uh, at a place called Mount Gilboa. Uh, we also saw how Saul was uh, mortally wounded, but he ended up taking his own life by falling on his sword after his armor bearer refused to kill him. Uh, David had attacked um, David's town, uh, Ziklag, which was given to him by the Philistines because David is serving as a Philistine mercenary. Um, uh, That town was destroyed uh, by the Amalekites. David goes and captures the Amalekites, or uh, defeats the Amalekites, gets the goods back, and sends them back. Um, um, This takes place immediately after that uh, a messenger uh, comes to David um, and announces that both Saul and Jonathan are dead the messenger's report differs though in gigantic ways from the story that we read last week at the end of first Samuel 31 we'll dig into that a little bit more in in question uh, one. Um, He then presents David with Saul's crown and his armband as evidence that what he's saying is true. Um, There's lots of debate about what the the Amalekite is saying, um, but it's clear that the Amalekite is under the mistaken assumption that David wanted to seize the throne from Saul, and that David would reward handsomely anyone who took Saul's life, uh, the life of his political rival. Uh, More likely, a more likely scenario could be um, that the Amalekite found Saul's body after the battle and before the Philistines took the royal regalia. 
um, or before, before the Philistines came in, he took the royal regalia. Um, but we'll, we'll look into more about what you guys think about the difference there when we get to question one. Uh, David's response is question two. Uh, David's response to this, uh, what, is he going to rejoice at the death of Samuel, at the death of Saul uh, uh, and Jonathan? Will he reward the Amalekite as a bearer of good tidings and the one who facilitates his own ascent to uh, the royal status? Uh, no, the first reaction of David and his men is grief. In spite of their exile, they're the fir first and foremost, they're Israelites, and, and they mourned the defeat. They mourned the widespread loss of life, and particularly the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. Um, Saul may have thought David was his enemy, but David never tried to uh, David has tried to prove for the last several years that he re he refuses, and even in death, refuses to treat Saul as his enemy. Uh, so it looks like the mourning here is genuine. Uh, David's next response was not at all what this messenger expected. David asks him why he would dare to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Um, now, David's words here, um, they do have a tad bit of self-interest because David is the Lord's anointed. Um, uh, though I, I wouldn't want to um, say David's being completely selfish. Uh, there is, one could see some selfish motives here. David is the Lord's anointed. He treats Saul that way because he knows he doesn't want to be treated that way. Um, um, then without waiting for a reply, David commands one of his men to put the Amalekite to death. The Amalekite has his blood on his own head because um, he's claiming to kill the king, and David doesn't know better at this point. Um, uh, so David has been trying very hard to ensure that when he did come to power, it was not as a result of his own rebellion against Saul or through political manipulation of any kind. Now, that doesn't mean David's not hasn't been political. Um, and we'll see that he is he's very political in what he does. If David was to have any hope, though, of winning over uh, the other uh, 11 tribes of Israel uh, and, and 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 especially those who um, continue to support Saul. It's going to be, it was necessary for him to not have been responsible for Saul's death. Um, the, Amal the, the Amalekite killing Saul, seizing the royal uh, crown and, and regalia, and then bringing it to David immediately could be viewed as very suspicious. That's why David puts him to death immediately. Um, that's the, there's political ramifications there. Um, uh, so the Amalekite had confessed that he killed Saul, and so he's um, he, he made, he's made to stand by his own words. Next in the next the rest of chapter one, you've got David's lament for Saul and Jonathan, and it's been long recognized as one of the finest examples of Hebrew poetry in the Bible. Even in English, um, the King James Version has immortalized certain sections of this. Tell it not in Gath. 
oh, how the mighty have fallen, right? Those are, we know those phrases because they've passed into literature and vernacular, um, but, and they come from the King James rendering of this uh, song. Um, this song was considered even such an, of such an importance back in biblical times that we have a reference to an extra biblical book of Jasher, which appears to have been an ancient Israelite collection of poetry which circulated in the Old Testament. It's been referenced a couple other times too in the Old Testament. Um, there's also a tad bit of political motivation in David's insistence that his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, be taught the hymn. Judah can't be seen as being anti-Saul or being uh, pleased that he's been removed from the scene and thus opening the door for the Judean David to take power into his own hands. Um, they they, along with all the other tribes, mourn the loss of their united king, and, uh, but that doesn't mean, uh, so there is a bit of a political motivation here, but that doesn't mean uh, the grief expressed in this poem is not real. We have a question about this poem, um, uh, but verse 19 functions as a heading uh, and it captures the, the central theme, oh how the mighty have fallen. Um, this is repeated, this is like a refrain, and it's repeated three times in the poem, at the beginning, in the middle, and the end. Um, so it's clear from this poem that David regards Saul and Jonathan as, as national heroes, right? And their deaths are a calamity to the nation. And David, able, was, David was able to rise above his personal grievances that had existed between him and Saul, and he was able to give heartfelt expression to great sorrow over the loss of Israel that had that they had sustained over military defeat and and the loss of vital leaders in their battle. Um, the, the lament also gives us an unusual insight into David's thoughts and feelings um, uh, at, at this turning point in his life. Remember we said that way 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 back in the beginning that we don't we don't often get uh, the glimpse into what David's thinking, the the right the author uh, uh, or uh, who's writing this these accounts um, doesn't often tell us what David's thinking. Um, here is one of the times where he does. Um, so, in spite of the fact that Saul sought to take his life, J David shows no vindictiveness towards him. Um, he and he doesn't um, heap on. A, uh, he doesn't gloat. He doesn't. Um, have expressions of happiness and joy because of Saul's death. Um, there's no victory dance. Um, David shows respect and honor for a, a person he continued to recognize as the Lord's anointed, the royal king, notwithstanding the fact that the, the king abused the office to which he was entrusted. Um, and all of this, David showed himself to be someone who was worthy of the office that he was um, going to take. Um, we've seen David's lament psalm here for Saul. Um, there's an interesting application I want to make out of this, and that's if David didn't want to want the matter, the what happened, to be paraded around in public so that it might not become a source of joy for um for Israel's enemies, the Philistines, how much more 
must we avoid spreading gossip to, to ears that um, don't need to hear the information. Um, instead, we shouldn't spread gossip even among ourselves uh, for fear that others may hear it and they may rejoice or for fear that uh, they may learn of it uh, and, and fall. So when you hear news uh, that's not your business, hush it up, keep it quiet, <laughs> guard it on every side. Don't say, I told you so. Uh, no, keep the story to yourself. Uh, eighth commandment. Uh, um, uh, I think there's a, there's a good um, eighth commandment application to this song. Okay, moving on to chapter two. So although it's clear to David um, that he and his men could no longer stay in Ziklag, I mean, the city was given to him by a Philistine and uh, it's destroyed anyway by the Amalekites. Uh, it, it wasn't clear to him exactly what he should do next. Uh, so this is the setting for David's first learning of first recorded action after learning the death of Saul. So what does David do first? David doesn't want to repeat the mistake he made when he went to Gath without first seeking God's guidance. So from the very the very first thing he does is he requests God's guidance. We're presumably using the ephod, which was still in his possession uh, before making the journey. So that's what he does. David, David seems to be have been aware and, he, and he's learned in his own experience lessons that um, from Israel's history and such that he's, he's learned that um, when God makes his promises and, and purposes known, it's important to acknowledge that you need to wait on God's timing for those things and, and not uh, take matters into your own hands. David's learned that lesson. Um, as expected, the people of Judah, they anoint David as their king. Um, David's already been anointed by Samuel, uh, but now he's anointed as D Judah's king. Um, not, he's not the king of Israel yet. He's only the king of Judah. David chooses uh, Hebron as his capital uh, at the direction of God. Um, and um, this is a very astute political move. God, can, God knows politics and he knows the best choice. Um, Hebron is an important city in Judah. It's strategically located in the Judean hill country. Um, it was it had strong ties with Caleb, who was one of the founding fathers of Israel, right? David has already married Abigail and Ahinoam. We learned last week um, that um, because uh, Nabal was a chieftain, uh, a Calebite chieftain, David is now a Calebite chieftain. And Ahinoam is the daughter of a prominent Calebite as well. So David has connections to the Calebite clan and um, by marriage. Um, and um, not only that, he has been paying several cities, Hebron is one of them, with all of the plunder that he's been getting while he's been raiding with the Philistines. So he, um, so he comes back and, and so much so that the Philistines have called David the king of the land. He's not king in name, but yeah, he, he's pretty much the king of this place. So once Saul's out of the way, Judah wastes, wastes no time and makes him king. Um, 
one of the first things David does as king. Um, we remember last week, um, Saul's remains were captured and being desecrated and dishonored by the Philistines. And the men of Jabesh Gilead, this town which Saul had saved at the beginning of his reign, in, in repayment for that honor, go and they rescue Saul's remains. So D David sends a message of thanksgiving and encouragement to them, uh, thanking them for their loyalty. Uh, um, and, and Jabesh Gilead, you have to know, it, it's, it's way up in the north. Um, so it's not part of Judah. It's part of the other tribes. Um, and along with the compliment, um, David is taking the occasion of their act of loyalty and summons them um, by means of their uh, praising them for their burial of Saul, of Saul. He summons them to be loyal to him because he has now been anointed. Um, um, he has been now uh, anointed as um, king. Um, um, uh, as king in Judah. Um, so he, um, so um, it's, it's clear um, he's inviting them to recognize his, him as the rightful successor and le the legitimate of Saul and the legitimate ruler of Israel. Um, this invitation to Jabesh Gilead makes it clear that David is got his eyes, his sights set on becoming king of all Israel. Um, um, it's, he um, is now anointed king over Judah, and now he will be king over all Israel. Um, so this is a very political act. Um, he's gaining their respect, um, but he also was trying to win them over. Um, let's back up and move up north. Uh, with Saul dead, the most powerful man in Israel is Abner. Abner is Saul's general. Um, it was Abner who put Saul's son, Ishbosheth, or um, now his name is not Ishbosheth. His name is Ishbael. Um, the Hebrew text that you have in your English Bibles, for the most part, um, is a translation of a later Hebrew text. We have found earlier Hebrew texts, uh, and we see in Chronicles, uh, which is in your Bible anyway, that his name is Ish Baal. And the medieval uh, Jews didn't like a, a son of Saul's being named Baal, and so they named him Instead of the son of Baal, Ish-bosheth, or they, ish Baal, they named him, they renamed him Ish-bosheth, the son of shame. So um, a, a good translation, we'll show you in the footnote, um, we'll show you this difference in the footnote. Um, so I'll refer to him as Ish-bale, your translation might say Ish-bosheth, same person. Uh, um, yeah, okay. So he, Ishbosheth, Ishbael, he, although he's a son of Saul, he's just a puppet. Abner's the real power behind the throne. Um, 
Abner is now the obstacle between David and the throne of Israel and Judah. You can see from this that um, it would be a mistake to view Israel as a nation the way we understand it. During the time of the judges, they were a loose confederation of tribes um, with a common heritage. Um, and now you'll see how easily that unity is very fragile and it breaks apart. Um, so Ishbael is used by Abner to lend legitimacy to Abner's own desire to retain military power and political influence. Um, now, Ishbael does not become king all at once. Verse nine, in verse nine, that list is chronological. And it's clear in the Hebrew. First, he was king over Gilead. Then he was king over the next place. Um, I have to pull up the verse here. Uh, then he was made king over the Asherites, then Jezreel, then Ephraim, then Benjamin, and over all Israel. All right. It, and so this is not all at once. This is chronological. And you'll see that the reason is because of the summary here. It should be clear once you read it. David is said to have reigned seven and a half years in Hebron, while Ishbael only reigns two years over all of Israel. So it takes Abner five years to consolidate Ishbael's reign. Additionally, chapter three, verse one says that this war that breaks out that we're about to talk about, this long war that breaks out between the house of Saul and the house of David, it says it calls it a long war. If it's just two years, that's not a long war. But if it's seven and a half years of war, that's that's a pretty long war. Um, so so um, this gradual during this gradual rise of Ishbael as king, David has a claim over the throne. In, uh, uh, of Judah. He is throne of Judah and he's made a claim over the throne of all Israel. So this sparks a war, a civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. The war lasts, like I just said, roughly seven years. Um, the northern tribes in particular have been loyal to Saul and the army at least is, is still loyal to Abner and the king, uh, he <laughs> backs. Um, David uh, he had a good reputation, but uh, the North is not ready to give up the line of Saul for Judah. Saul still has several sons who are alive. Um, on the one hand, we have uh, a regime created by a high-handed general and a monarchy which has been announced long ago by a prophet and is currently recognized by one tribe. And with two kings, a, a, an explosive war results. Chapter two describes a, continues on, go, to go on to describe a major battle in this war. Um, and it moves into a political fight, which we're going to see um, explode um, and cause scandal for David in the next, uh, next week. Um, Abner, uh, when Abner moves his troops, we might not understand all the geography, but when Abner moves his troops, he is deliberately attempting to impose the northern uh, might on David's Judean kingdom. A Abner's on the attack. He's invading. 
um, and in and in an attempt to avoid a full scale battle between these two forces, um, Abner uh, proposes that each side select ten men, uh, twelve men, to engage in battle by proxy. Now, this is very common in the ancient world. Um, the battle ends in a draw. Twelve, all twelve men kill each other. Um, so when that ends in draw, a draw um, and a big battle ensues and Joab's forces are victorious while those of Abner are forced to flee. The battle's fierce, uh, but David's troops under Joab are, are carrying the day. Among the casualties is Joab's brother Asahel. This is so important for next week. It was Abner who killed him. Though Abner didn't really want to kill him, and he didn't kill him out of malice, Abner is retreating from his army, and Asahel, who seems to be a pretty quick dude, uh, is, an, is intent on making a name for himself by slaying the enemy general. Um, despite being report, warned repeatedly to give up the chase, uh, he stubbornly <laughs> persists on, and Abner... Uh, in a rare moment of gore, this is in the Bible, it says he st stuck his spear out and, and the, 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 the blunt end of the wooden spear went through entirely through his body. And so Asahel is um, uh, dead. Abner, you can imagine Joab is not quite too happy about this. Um, and he is insistent that he's going to pursue uh, Joab until uh, or Joab is going to pr pursue Abner until Abner the text says gets the high ground um, insert all your references to Obi-Wan Kenobi and Star Wars episode 3 here but uh, um, Abner's got the high ground and so uh, Joab's a smart commander he knows that he's won a good victory uh, and if he continues the battle, he's going to lose more. And so they call uh, a temporary truce for now. And, and that brings us to the end of chapter two. Um, and just some brief thoughts uh, on this. Um, I think it's really important that David begins his rule, his reign, in submission to God, seeking to guide God's guidance, um, praying for his blessing on others and, and this kind of thing. And although he's established as king over Judah, there's still lots of problems that remain. He continues to exercise patience by not forcing uh, this pace of change, awaiting for God's providence to God to step in and to resolve the strife. He's still waiting on God. Um, uh, this rival regime in Ishbosheth or Ishbael. Um, uh, through Abner, that blo that's blocking his path uh, to his rule over all Israel. Um, it was very wrong for Ab Abner to prolong division willfully and unnecessarily. Um, <laughs> as you'll see later, Abner is very aware of, of the destiny that God has carved out for David. And, and he even acknowledged, and even Saul had acknowledged that. Uh, so he, he knows what God has said. He knows what Samuel, the prophet of God has said. And yet he deliberately refuses to accept and apply God's uh, declared will. Uh, 
this is something that happens still in the church. Uh, and it, it's a big cause of division. Uh, and the, the, the cause of the gospel is always weakened by people who promote their own interests instead of Christ's. Uh, but what we see here in this chapter is the beginnings of God's kingdom. This is its humble beginnings. Uh, a little town in um, of the hill country of the Middle East by one, led by one man, David. The kingdom starts here. And God is able to work through this kingdom uh, despite the sinfulness of the people involved. God is working out a purpose here that will eventually lead to great David's greater son. And all of the good qualities we see from David as he's being king um, are magnified uh, a million fold in Jesus. Um, uh, and when David messes up or acts in a way we don't see as being perfect, that's a reflection that he still is not living up to this um, idea of God as, as being the anointed king. All right. Those are my thoughts and comments on the text. Let's uh, unmute ourselves now and jump into some discussion. Um, so let's look at the first question here. Compare uh, the Amalekites story in 2 Samuel 1 with the account in first samuel 31 why did the young lamb lie to david about the death of saul or did he lie are you gonna say that there's just a blatant contradiction here um, <laughs> um what did this amalekite expect he expected a reward for killing or supposedly saying that he killed Saul because um, he knew that that uh, Saul was an, <clears throat> an arch enemy of David. Mm -hmm. The other thing too is that he probably fought with Saul's army and he uh, was using this ruse to protect himself <laughs> and as you say gain favor and gain power as well. There, there's a bit of irony here with his nationality. What, what's the irony with his nationality? Um, he's an Amalekite, isn't he? he? He's an Amalekite. Now, why is that ironic? Because the Amalekites had just kidnapped all the families of David and his followers. Right. And, and they just fought them and chased them off it's entirely possible that maybe he was one of those guys that got away on a camel. <laughs> There's an idea. <laughs> um, but the, the Malachites were supposed to be defeated. God yes. gave that the, order earlier. That's right. That, that's, that's the point I'm, I'm looking at. Um, it, it, it's interesting that Saul was told to kill the Amalekites. And here he is at, after his death. An Amalekite is claiming to have killed him. Um, does anybody actually believe this Amalekite story? Some, there's some liberal scholars who do. Um, well, David wasn't there. So, so who, uh, 
who would know the difference if the Amalekites said to David, you know, I, gee, I killed him. Like, David wasn't there, so... Yeah, and he's got the he's got the proof, right? He's got yep. the bloody crown and the yep. You know, he's yep. got he's got the goods. David's got no reason to to doubt him. Um, absolutely. But, but David also heard about how Saul had died um, from the people that saved his like Saul's remains. That's later indignities, and. Uh, they really didn't have a whole lot to gain. I don't think they had a hidden agenda for doing so. No, no. And, and um, so this Amalekite, if he would have buried Saul and then brought brought the, the, the crown and said, you know what, I saw, I saw him, he committed suicide, or I found his body on the field and I buried him and here's his crown, uh, he probably would have been rewarded. <laughs> but he... he he, his ambition, his um, his his desire for what glory, his ego got an <clears throat> ego got, got the best of him. Yep. yep. <clears throat> Anybody else want to mention anything about this Amalekite in this story before we move on to the next question? All right, next question. How does David respond to the Amalekite? Killed him. <laughs> Killed him. Hacked him to pieces. What do you think motivated David to respond to the testimony the way he he did? What's That's David's what I <laughs> Why did he kill him? David might have been angry simply because he spared Saul's life and, and didn't try to go to the uh, he didn't try to wipe him out, so here comes along this guy, and he does it. So he might sure. have been pretty upset with it. Sure. And, and, and because of the early history between David and Saul, David was probably still mourning Saul. Yep. And uh, um... Dave, <clears throat> David had respect for Saul because Saul was the anointed king. The anointed king, uh-huh. And so David cites that that little phrase touch not my the lord's anointed right don't don't yeah. raise your hand against the lord's anointed so um you know this is the one who's been chosen by god to rule a nation and if you raise up your hand against him you're raising your hand against against god um and, and i and i mentioned some people could could read into that a bit of a political self-serving thing because david is now just happens to be the the next anointed king so, um, but when we look at these kinds of things, I think it's important to see that David is a sinner like us. So he probably, like us, has mixed motives, right? Um, but God can use people with mixed motives. Um, do you think that David's response was appropriate? Or is it too hard? At the time, yeah, absolutely. Given, uh, not going to judge him by the Geneva Convention, but <laughs> given given his uh, his culture and the time, yep. Um, what does this how what does this say about how um, about how um, goodness that sentence does not make sense. Should have proofread. <laughs> what. What does this say about how um, we, we there, we 
are supposed to respond to God's judgment upon sinners. Just like, just like David was patient with uh, Saul, um, we're, we're to be patient with others too. Uh, let right. God be the final judge of things and not us. That's right. And what might this tell us about the final judgment? And that question I'm asking, um, the way between the way David uh, deals with the Amalekite, there, there's something there uh, about the final judgment that I wanted to highlight. Well, it's swift and irrevocable. Yeah. Yeah, final yeah. judgment is final. Uh, but it's also based, uh, it, it's... Um, it's a righteous judgment. It's a righteous judgment. It's also based on, right? Um, so it's also based on um, <clears throat> the idea that David gave the Amalekite every opportunity to redeem himself, the same as Christ. Sure. Uh, although his judgment will be swift, he wants everyone to repent and is willing to, you know, <clears throat> basically go right up to the end with you to see if you will repent. Right. And... and um, the Amalekite was judged for his actions, not his act, his, his, his words, um, whether or not, uh, his actions were true. He's judged for his intent of his heart, whether or not he actually did it. And he didn't, he didn't actually kill Saul. He just claims to, he's judged for the intents of his heart. Well, which brings, but brings some confusion to me is because Saul asked to be killed. Right, and then last time we talked about how Saul took his own life, and that was a sin. Mm -hmm. David is hot-headed; he killed this guy, and to me, David is hot-headed. He overreacts, and this he overreacts. I just feel sometimes that I'm a little confused on our actions here. <laughs> That's all. It's just like it's okay to kill this guy because he said something. That's right. Well, you know, um, the, the here here's a question. Does the does the 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 historian here, who's writing this account, does he pass judgment on David's actions here? No, he does not. No. So who is left to make who is left to pass judgment on David's actions? That is God. God is. God is, but I mean, I mean, we are because we're the okay. ones reading the account, and yeah. we're the ones who have to square their actions with the rest of what the Bible says, right? So if you if you say no, I don't think David was justified in, in, in killing this guy, uh, and and then well, I don't I mean, know if he was or not. Yeah, it, I it's kind of confusing to me because in my when I looked up on the history of this, they thought some of the scholars thought that this guy was not in the army; he was a scavenger that just came upon things. Yep, yep, that's right. So he wasn't actually doing; he wasn't in the army; he was right. just. Uh, Popped on the battlefield after and tried to take. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. he may have been hiding in the bushes and seeing the whole sort of thing happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's that that that's like that's the story I think probably makes the most sense out of the the data uh, that we have. But it, it's interesting. I mean, the Bible does not paint our heroes as golden boys, do they? No. <laughs> no, which is a good thing. Which is a good thing, right? Um, David is portrayed warts and all. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, 
Now let's let's talk about that uh, that poem there, the the funeral dirge for Saul and Jonathan. Uh, what does the refrain? And you find that refrain in verses 19, 25, and 27. What does that refrain tell you about the theme of David's dirge? What's the theme? I think David was thinking about how he had assumed the same status as Saul and how he too could earn the Lord's revenge if he did not execute his office properly. So he's he's thinking about the future. He's thinking that he he too could fail, because Saul failed. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, other thoughts? David respected the authority that was invested in Saul. Yeah, and his absolutely. family. David's uh, faithful to God's promises. Yeah, yeah. And and David loves Saul and Jonathan. He does. He's he 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 loves them. He views them as mighty, as heroes, right? War heroes, mm -hmm. despite the uh, their national heroes. Despite you know, it's like um, bad example, but it's like uh, you know, uh, people who were John McCain's political opponents when he was running, nonetheless thanking him for his service is military service in Vietnam or something, right? You can respect somebody for their uh, their their contributions to the country without while disagreeing with them. And there's a little bit of that here, right? All right. Wh what do you learn about David through his, his personal expression of his grief? He's an emotional guy. Yeah, 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 you can see that. He's, um, he feels very strongly, doesn't he? Uh, strong anger in one moment and, you know, lament in another moment. Uh, yeah. He shows, shows no bitterness towards Saul. He's got a forgiving heart and he's, mm -hmm. and he, and he looks beyond what Saul had done to him. That's right. Absolutely. Good stuff there. And we'll just tie that in there. Why does David mourn over the death of Saul instead of rejoicing at the Lord's revenge upon arrival? He showed respect. He showed respect. Absolutely. He treated Saul as his father, as a father figure or, or father, because he was he, he, he said Jonathan was like a brother to him. That's right. Now, by way of contrast, uh, by way of contrast, Psalm 18. And, and, and when somebody who's got Psalm 18, we're not going to read the whole thing. Just read the superscription on Psalm 18. What's the superscription? Like the, the thing before verse 1. Oh. Okay, to, the, to the choir master, yep. a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. Yeah. So Psalm 18, David wrote two psalms on this day. He wrote a lament and he wrote Psalm 18. And I wish I would have remembered that when I wrote the questions. 
<laughs> because that's a more interesting question comparing what he wrote here with the lament psalm but um the lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer the lord is my uh refuge uh the cords of death encompassed me the cords of sheol entangled me uh in my distress i called upon the lord from his temple he heard my voice the earth rocked and reeled the foundations of the mountains trembled smoke went up from god's nostrils devouring fire came out of his mouth he bowed the heavens and came down darkness was under his feet he rode the cherubims and flew and you know uh and it, the lord thundered from his heavens he sent out his mighty arrows uh he reached down from heaven and he took me high and uh the lord rewarded me according to my righteousness um the whole thing um in psalm 18 you can read it afterwards it's um he's essentially saying that the death of Saul is God's judgment. So on the one hand, he's able to lament and mourn for the death of Saul. On the other hand, he's also able to recognize that this is, a, this is because of God's providence and this is God's judgment on him. Just is, an, it, is David's lament a psalm in in the book of psalms or is it no. just in the book of samuel just in the book of samuel okay yep it's not in the book of psalms he does so, lament a few other things in the book of psalms though yes he does <laughs> yeah. like a few laments <laughs> yep absolutely and, and those lament psalms if you ever find a list of them they're very good for times when you're also lamenting <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, great. Um, now, number four is, is sharing optional. Uh, personal reflection, sharing optional. Think of those in your own life with whom you have been in conflict. Uh, how ready are you to acknowledge the good times you may have shared the, or the good qualities of the per in the person despite the conflict? Uh, why is it important to resolve conflict conflicts? So that part we'll leave out unless you really want to unload your your heart here but this part here, this part why is it important to resolve conflicts and rivalries quickly so they don't and, fester and deepen they don't fester and deepen right like they say let the sun go down on your anger so that's yeah. right yeah um so that, that's a i think that's a big that's a a pretty big application to this text is is that personal reflection if conflicts are allowed to escalate they eventually destroy both parties absolutely yes. absolutely all right so besides the death of saul what is the motivation for david for david's going up to hebron in the land of judah to establish a home to establish a home base to establish a home base yeah Put another way, what does he do before he goes to Hebron? He consults God and God tells him to go. He goes, God tells him to go. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Now, getting to the political motivations, why are David's wives mentioned? And why does he bring them to Hebron? Are they marriages of convenience? Are they stepping stones 
to power? Is, is it a politically motivated marriage as opposed to a, a marriage as we know it today? Absolutely. That is bang on correct. And if you don't believe me, just wait till <laughs> the near future and you'll see, you'll see it um, with um, his first wife, Michael. And you'll see that, you'll see David doing that for, for base political opportunism. Has she's uh, gone off and married somebody else? Has she not at this point in time? Yeah. Well, spoilers yeah. in a couple chapters in, in but before the end of this Ishbosheth Ishbael nonsense, uh, David is going to re- request that Michael be restored to him and, and, as oh. his wife, um, and she is. She comes and and, and the, her poor husband, who actually loves her, is weeping as as she's taken away by Abner. Oh, well, okay. she's restored to David because David, she's Saul's daughter. Thus, she legitimizes David as a son-in-law of Saul. And thus, according okay. to the, the laws of primogeniture, he has a, a, a legal direct, he's a member of the royal family and has a claim on the throne. Right. It's 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 David's wife. David's marriages at this point in his life are the marriages like Henry VIII, like any other king in history. They are marriages of convenience. He wants heirs and he's it's political power. That's why his wives are mentioned, because they both are important noble women in this particular region of Israel. And it's important to remember to like. In this time, there were a, there was often a lot of power that was just seized by pure military might. But with Israel having, at the time, some would say delusions of grandeur via the prophecies that they have from God of being this like powerhouse and being meant to take over this land, um, they're going to be looking to the big political powers of the day, which is Egypt, which is Babylon, which is, you know, these, these kingdoms that have that kind of primogenitor construct already in place. And so if someone can establish leadership, not just through might of arms, but also through that other um, set of criteria, then the nation of Israel is going to be even more motivated to back him because he not only has just like bullied everybody into following him, but also has this like stamp of kind of culture as it were. Right. And, and that's, a, that's a, you make some really good points there because um, the old Testament in Deuteronomy, it allows, there's a law that allows for a King, but there is no detail there about how that's going to be passed on to the next. There's no law of, uh, in the old Testament of succession. Um so how did they figure out that it passes from father to son? Well, it's, they picked up on the culture around them. Um, uh, the, Bible does, the Bible, like Deuteronomy and the Old Testament, it gives them lots of laws, uh, lots of civil laws, but not a lot, not, it's not a constitution uh, the way we would understand it. And so that, that's kind of assumed from their, their their, their own culture. That's why when you read the Bible, you need to tra- not just translate the words, you need to translate the culture too, because it's often different from ours. 
um, yeah, good point. It also point. has to be kind of that lineage from Abraham, you know, like the seed following through. Right. You get Christ as, you know, being a son of David, right? So right, kind of like right. this lineage that goes through the bloodline, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because the the um, promise to Judah by Abraham, the promise that Abraham gives Judah is that the scepter, the ruling, the right to rule uh, won't pass away from Judah. So Judah is, is going to is the promised king. Um, uh, and that's that's true. But what's remarkable here is when you look at this text and you dig into it. It's like Game of Thrones or, or, you know, politics or House of Cards or any of these things. There's politics. You can see it. And yet God can you, and it's a very real world that's being depicted here, not a, a fantasy world. Uh, it's a real world. Uh, and what's, what's important about seeing that is um, God works through that. To bring about the messiah <laughs> he works through all the you know the, pol the politicking and the backstabbing and the political maneuvering and, and all that stuff god is working to establish israel as a kingdom and to bring a, to bring the messiah down um uh, and if god can do that with those kinds of things surely he can work be at work in our in our lives um to bring us his grace and mercy, right? Just a question as an aside to all of this. In size, the 12 tribes of Israel, what, where did Judah sit? Was Judah the most powerful, the most populated? Uh, they're, they're, yeah, they're probably, they're, they tend to be the most powerful and the most populated um, because uh, the northern tribes, it's always... The northern tribes against the south. The south. Yeah. Sometimes, only rarely. When you see Israel in the Bible, outside of outside of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Uh, and maybe Joshua, Judges. Most of the time, the word Israel refers to only the northern ten tribes. That, that's an important thing to note. Judah refers to the southern two, especially in the prophets. We get that a lot in the prophets uh, because um, the kingdom, don't forget, was split. L later on, the kingdom was, it's split here. It'll be united under David and uh, Solomon, and then it'll split again. Um, um, and, and so that's why they make that distinction. And, and Jews are from what tribe? Judah. Judah. Just making sure we know that. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Um, where were we here? Ah, after Saul dies, David claims only the tribe of Judah as his kingdom. Why doesn't he assert, or does he, I should say, does he assert his authority to rule over all 12 tribes at this time? I think it's a move to consolidate a power base before he tries to expand further. Right. Yeah. His his call to Jabesh Gilead, he doesn't exert the he doesn't express his right to rule over them. He calls them to loyalty to 
him as king. Um, um, he kind of puts himself forward as the right successor, but he doesn't ex- say, no, I'm your rightful king. Right? He doesn't do that yet. Um, why shouldn't it be surprising that David soon became king in Judah? Does it go back to when Samuel anointed him um, as as the youngest son of um, no, 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 not quite. Um, not quite. Okay. Look at First uh, Samuel thirty verses twenty six to thirty one, and that's that's kind of the answer I'm looking for. Why isn't it surprising that David very quickly becomes king in Judah? Well, he sent spoils to all accounts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's been paving the way, right? He's been paying. He's been plundering for a year and a half with the Philistines and 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 making all the elders filthy rich by sending them money. Um, he, as soon as as soon as Saul's dead, he he comes in and they're like, "Yeah, you're our king." Um, uh, from a natural perspective, it made it made a lot of sense to them. I'm sure. Uh, and, and yet God can work through that. Um, what skills for diplomacy does David show as king? And that's the um, issue. Uh, yeah. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, moving on to the next question then. Uh, why does Abner crown Ishbael as king of Israel instead of acknowledging David as king? How does that contrast with how David was made king? Why does Abner? Abner was loyal to Saul. So for him, it was logical to give the kingdom to Saul's successor. Mm-hmm. And direct successor would be his blood son. He's catering to Saul's base. Right. Yeah. And um, how, how does it contrast with David? Look, about, look at the, the manner in which David is. Um, what, what did the men of Judah do to David to make him king? They anointed him. They, they anointed, anointed him. him. Was, was Ishbael anointed? No, he was just made. He was just set up by a military commander, right? Notice the, the contrast there. That, that, that's interesting. One follows the, the prophetic line of, of uh, follows the prophetic example. Uh, and and the, the oil repre- represents the Holy Spirit, right? That's why you anoint kings with oil. All, all so Abner, take, Abner takes it into his own hand to do this rather than asking for direction from, from God. Yep. And Abner does it and not the people. It's not, it's not, yeah. right? It's not the men of, right? The men of Judah, it was the, the whole clan got together and they chose him. Right. In this case, uh, Abner had to spend five years uh, slowly getting the Ishbael uh, to be the uh, king over, over the, um, these, uh, these various parts of the north. And, and yes, all the while, Abner was using him just as a sock puppet. That's right. <laughs> in a funny way, David's rule is actually democratic in that sense. Yes, that's right. Yep. 
Absolutely. That's a good. Um, all right. So you have two rival regimes, chapter uh, question eight uh, in this chapter, Abner leading the forces of Saul's family and Joab leading David's forces. How did the two generals try to resolve the conflict uh, without a full scale war? Uh, their little 12 on 12 contest. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you've seen, um, if you've seen like, this kind of stuff mm -hmm. happens all the time, it's recorded in Greek literature. Um, if you see the movie Troy, you'll see an example of it in the several examples of it throughout that movie um, of this, you know, contest thing. Uh, how does that idea fail? Everybody, they all die. They all die. Um, funny thing here. Why twelve? One for each tribe. One for each tribe. How many people? How many people died from uh, the Northern Kingdom's side? Twenty. No, the Northern, the, uh, the Israel. It was three. Oh, okay. Yeah, three, three sixty. Twelve times. Three, okay. 12 times 30. Yeah, okay. 12 times 30. Uh, <laughs> it just, you know, revelation vibes going on there. <laughs> okay. um, um, why do you think the writer of this book has focused more on the individual fights rather than describing to you the whole battle? I, I think he wants to convey, um, you know, the central theme rather than just an epic battle. To give you some of the, the politics and the background so we can understand why the battles were occurring, not so much the battles themselves. Right. That's a good, good answer. Other thoughts? Well, he's focused on the key players and how they fit into God's plan. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That that's part of it. And and it's gonna it's gonna come up. And there's gonna be scandal next week when we deal with David or Abner and Joab. Joab's not. Joab is none too happy about about the death of his baby brother. Right. Um. And then there's another um, um, another little question, another reflection question. Think about times in your own life when rivalry competition led resulted in someone getting hurt. Uh, what does it take to end a rivalry? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's right. reconciliation. Yeah. Reconciliation. Absolutely. All right. Our, and our standard two questions we have every study. What for these two chapters, what's uh, what verse or phrase or or what not would you say captures these two chapters best? I had how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Oh. Yep. Yep. That's... Yeah, I, I I went with one twenty one. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Yep. Oh, the mighty of all. That's that's, yeah, that's pretty, pretty, pretty good. Um, I I took two six. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness, 
and and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this for me or whatever it was. There. Yeah. Yep, that's right. I thought I two verse one where David asked for God's guidance. Yeah. Yeah. Another good one, absolutely. And as we close out our study, are there any lingering questions you have about this this section of scripture? How come people never learn? <laughs> How much time have you got tonight, Mark? <laughs> I'm not expecting an answer. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Some some of the the nitty gritty details here uh, are 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 are, are deep. You know, this this text would be very hard for me to preach on. Um, I I'm not entirely sure how I would do it. Um. um I'm not entirely sure. I, uh, this would be very hard. This would just be, a, this is a hard text to preach on. It, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of politics involved. There's a lot of personal things going on. Um, it, it would be, I would find this a challenge to preach on myself. Um, yeah, there's lots of bad behavior. Lots of bad <laughs> behavior. Um, and it's not entirely clear it's not entirely clear how this relates to the gospel directly. Um, well, if, if you go to how the mighty have fallen, um, you know, I, I think that could be tied into the gospel about how fleeting life actually is and how meaningless what we achieve on this earth actually can be. Yeah. And then when it's all over, it's our, our final reward that counts not what we've actually done here the, the other way to the, the the cheap way out of this is to do what i've been doing all along here is look for the moral look for the little moral lessons that the text is obviously teaching us and make sermons out of those that'd be one way another way is to look at the bible as a as a drama right uh and and uh, uh, creation fall the establishment of god's kingdom uh, redemption accomplished and then redemption fulfilled, right? This five part drama from Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, figuring out where this story fits in to God's plan to bring to get us to Jesus. That's another way you could take this text That's good. Uh, and, and think about how, in the midst of all this, God is, is orchestrating and he's playing the chess pieces to get everything the way he needs it to. Um, and that's um, basically just as a historical context to the gospel. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts or whatnot before we go? Good. All right. Well, I'll pray, and uh, you're free to leave. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we. Thank you for this chance to open up your word, to see the, uh, the history in your word, to see uh, 
um, the struggles that David um, and his, and your kingdom uh, ha had to get established. And uh, we, we think about uh, the church today and we see that uh, nothing has changed. The church still struggles against uh, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of the devil. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to cling firmly to great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and, and trust uh, that his rule is the just and perfect rule that all humanity looks for. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's, that's what I would do. It just occurred to me. Um, so in this, you see God's kingdom fighting against small, fighting against big kingdom that's opposing it. And, and that's, I think that can be very much a picture of yeah. what the church is today. Uh, the church, God's kingdom continues to be at war with the world, the flesh and the devil. Right. Yeah. Night. <laughs> Night. <laughs> <laughs> Night. <laughs> You've been listening to The Church Door. Thanks again for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, you can reach me, Pastor Matthew Fenn, at revfenn, R-E-V-F-E-N-N, at iCloud.com. Look forward to having you with us again next time.